Hello and welcome back to another episode of After This, the greatest uh, world unification podcast on the entire internet, and probably the only one. And my name is Daniel. <laughs> my name is Carla. And I am Shannon. And this week, um, I wanted to uh, speak about something which basically I've seen a lot of graphs and I've read a lot of books and articles about this concept in one way or another, but I sort of stumbled on another article the other day about it and I thought, look, I can make this into a a whole episode really because this is really concentrating a lot of it. Um, And uh, it's about the death of optimism in the United States um, because basically uh, America has sort of typified itself as this like never say die optimistic kind of country. Um, and America, in a lot of ways, is an analog for the rest of the West, because mm. um, what's happening there is sort of happening in one way or another in the other countries of the developing world, the developed world. Um, and um, you can kind of transpose a lot of things onto the rest of the West. So this is sort of about the entire West, not just the US. But uh, okay. just quickly, Daniel, I'm yeah. glad I'm glad <laughs> specifically the US because when I first glimpsed over it, it was like the death of optimism in us, <laughs> and that was a little bit more bleak. So <laughs> no, 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 the USA, and it, like it's focusing on certain areas. Honestly, we'll go over them as we get there, but. Um, yeah, it's just something I've heard a lot of a lot of things about, and it's it's more that there's this like carte blanche, everything's going to be great, everything's going to be fine, ignore the problems kind of optimism, like mm-hmm. that kind of blind optimism, and we'll relate back to that later when we go back to the article that I was talking about. But first, um, I wanted to mention some different graphs. I'd seen them these in different places over time, uh, but I thought I'd put them all together at the beginning of this as a kind of a good illustra- illustration. Um, so the first one was, and oh, look, I've seen this in a few things, and it's actually so small now, I can't actually read the source of this. Of this, um, this it's like a survey that was done, um, but I did see it in a news outlet, and then I found it here when I wanted to go looking for it. Um, basically, it's about the comparison between China, the UK, and the US. Uh, they asked a whole bunch of kids, uh, basically saying, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" Uh, like what? What's your what's your dream job? And um, in China, fifty six fifty six of the answering recipients um, said astronaut, and then it was fifty two were teacher, forty seven were musician. I think they gave them obviously these answers and said rank them. Yeah. These are only five that you can get. <clears throat> so fifty six astronaut, fifty two teacher, forty seven. Actually, it doesn't. They must have ticked. It must. You must be tickets. Tickets. Must be multiple choice. Forty-seven percent musician, thirty-seven percent athlete, and eighteen percent YouTuber or vlogger. Um, I'm actually surprised. Um, like doctor or medicine isn't up there as well. I think it's because, like I said, they only gave them five choices. Ah, okay, yeah. I think they basically said tick count. Tick really. How's How's this, Daniel? How's this? Um, uh, a few years ago now, I um went on a couple of dates with this um, girl from China and she was out of, uh, she came out of like, I think it was the second most prestigious all girls schools mm. in China. Right. And she was like, she came over here and she's like studying teaching. Cause she's like, if I'm not like, if I don't do teaching medicine or yeah, I think it's teaching medicine or music, then, mm. then I will let the family down. 
Yeah. Well, there is a very yeah. I mean, it's the same. It's the same as what the West was. Well, no, like. lawyer, lawyer. Sorry, it was a lawyer. If it's not uh, law, yeah, okay, law teacher, yeah. law teacher, or um, yeah, thing. Yeah. 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 They um. They is very similar in the West, I reckon, like 70 years ago, like in the 50s and 40s and stuff, as we mm. still very much have the same mentality, but it's like something changed over that period. Um, obviously, a lot of things have changed over that period. But basically, it's funny that China is at 56% because the UK and the United States are actually very similar. So um, the UK one is uh, 30% said um, YouTuber or vlogger. So it says at the bottom, actually, by the way, you can pick three answers. Up if to you three. See the, okay, cool. Yeah, up to three. So this is people who actually got three of these and didn't pick astronaut for any of them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so basically, United Kingdom is 30% YouTuber or vlogger, 25% teacher, 21% professional athlete, 18% musician, and 11% astronaut, as opposed to the 56% of Chinese people that wanted to pick astronaut. So I think... It's funny, I think the UK kids might have misunderstood and been ticking one of them because the numbers in general are a lot lower. Still <laughs> way past 100 Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But so a few of them were doing two or something, but, like, yeah. they weren't maximising their number of choices. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, the United States is 29% vlogger, uh, YouTuber, 26% uh, teacher, 23% athlete, 19% musician, and 11% astronaut. So they're both 11% astronaut, UK and the US. Um, again, as composed of the 56% for China. <laughs> yeah, I really am sceptical of this, to be perfectly honest. Like, I'd love China... to, I, I need to look into where it actually came from. Yeah, yeah. it's one of those pop psychology things, I think. Because, like, China doesn't, like, isn't YouTube mostly blocked in China? Oh, yeah. But so I that's going to influence they, how many people assume, want to be on YouTube. That's very true. I mean, that is a big part of it. I assume, though, that what they probably did was they wrote, you know, um, the, yeah, the Chinese yeah. equivalent of Vlogger. Yeah. You know, but it's going to be a much less um, well-publicized huh. vocation, I suppose. You're much less um, yeah. able to, to just do it and do whatever you want. Whereas yeah, yeah. in the... US, like being a YouTuber, it, to a kid at least, it just looks like you get to do your hobby for work. Like you just get paid to do your hobby. Now, in reality, it's a lot harder than that. But I don't know. I just, I don't like that idea that like, oh, well, they want to be YouTube. Therefore, everything sucks. It's like, well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's more that I think, uh, how to say this? I think there's a shift in... Um, the way you see the society around you, mm, mm. I think in a lot of ways is like, if you're gravitating more towards basically saying, I want to be, you know, famous and be mm. an entertainer, then obviously I think your idea about your role in society and society's role in general is obviously a bit different because yeah, if that's, that's where you're, if that's where the majority of children are focusing their attention, I mm. think, you know, it displays something about the way people the way people see themselves in society. Whereas, whereas again in China, if the majority mm. are saying astronaut and teacher, and then everything else is sort of below that, it shows a slightly different way that they're seeing their society. If nothing else, so yeah, faith, yeah, yeah no, that's fair. I'd also, I wish, I wish there was um, a complete list of all the answers they got to choose from. If it was only like those five, as you said, yeah, the other things would be different. It is, yeah. I'm pretty sure it was just the five. It was by something called Harris Insights and Analytics. Um, a stag like world. Someone's paid for. 
Yeah, probably. A Stagwell company. Uh, I'm just trying to see if it says anywhere. Well, did it, I reckon would it? I reckon also based on like the percentage differences, then that it also shows that United Kingdom and the United States are more willing to put all their eggs in one basket by making one selection, whereas the um, Chinese were doing the one, two, and three more consistently. Uh, apparently, it was a global study run by Lego because Lego wanted to. Um, it was part of something where they're trying to pump up excitement for space exploration with a oh, range cool. of stuff, with a range of stuff that they're doing. And then they were super surprised that so many of the Western audience <laughs> wanted to go YouTube star and it actually caught them off guard, apparently. So that's um, apparently that's where it all came from. I, yeah. I followed some links and I found out where it came from. But well, yeah, hang on, funding for NASA. Surely that's been plummeting over the last. Oh, for, I've done lots of things. Funding for NASA has not been. It's been really low for a long time. Yeah, and I think I think the funding for NASA thing is interesting because it's kind of a reflection of how we see again the universe, not just the world around us, mm. but like our role in things and what kind of curiosity we have. It seems people are a lot more interested. Predominantly now in, in sort of just being famous. I think I have it a lot for a long time, but it seems to be dominating more and more of our attention span because mm. maybe we're unsatisfied with the world and we don't think it's worth that much effort. Um, and that's just a guess, but I think it says something about us that where that the numbers are that out of whack, like they're mm. that different. Um, so, anyway, I'll keep going, but we can talk about the Lego thing another time if you want. Uh, just, just quickly, because I'm a couple of years ago, I heard a thing that's like, yeah, something like when kids in Australia were asked what they wanted to to be when they um, got older, they said famous. Like fifty six percent of people said famous, but they weren't specifically. Uh, what they nothing in particular. Just yeah, yeah. But even but even then, if you just put like you know musician you know athlete and b blogger all in that it makes up a very oh yeah large of like yeah. famous percentage there but yeah well i mean i'm impressed at least that they still tick teacher on mass between the us and the uk yeah i feel like that's something. just because teacher is a job that children knows exist that's true as well actually. <laughs> like, i don't know how, how, don't know how old these were. kids were but like how many people know what a project manager or a you know I mean, tax and accounting is still a pretty obvious one, but there's so many jobs in corporate that uh, just don't really make sense to a kid. And yeah, no, absolutely. And I, but I guess I guess it's not really a measure of actual occupation. It's more a no. measure of just how do you see the world? Yeah. And what do you focus on and things like that? It, yeah, it'd be interesting to know what like people would answer if they were older. I'll actually look into it. I'll come back to this in another episode. And Daniel, Let's if you cut me more. off again one more time, I'm going to have to like exit quarantine. And, uh, no, anyway. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> So I can slap you. <laughs> Sorry, what do you want to say? No, it's all good. It's all good. I was, <laughs> I'm more happy that I got to say that than what I was originally going to say. So. <laughs> so I'll go. So, okay. I mean, that one's ambiguous then. So we'll come back and we'll talk about it again at the time, I think, because it might be worth revisiting and looking at other comparisons about what people see themselves doing. Um, then the next one was basically by the Pew Research Center, which was basically uh, a general question, which was saying whether, what, do you think the children who grow up today are going to be better off, worse off, the same, or I don't know, than people mm -hmm. who are adults today. And 50% of the people that answered said worse off. 
Mm. Um, 34% said better off, 4% said the same, and 12% said I don't know. And obviously this is exclusively in the US. But for 50% to say worse off and then everything else just be jumbled between the other answers, um, people clearly are not... (laughs) Not super optimistic. (laughs) Yeah, people are clearly not really thinking that things are getting that much better, which is a juxtaposition to the 90s when and the early 2000s uh, like leading up to 9-11 and then sort of right afterwards though it was a period of economic growth so like people still thought things were going good but I think everything really started to bite in the mid-2000s and especially around the GFC um, and obviously there's another interesting one which kind of leads us into the article which was from Forbes I don't know who did the survey but it was a Forbes, it posted in Forbes mm-hmm. uh, which is a comparison between the life expectancy uh, between the United States and the OECD average Oh, so wow. aggregate. So basically, the United States average was the same as the rest of the OECD. So the um, Organization of Emerge no, uh, God, I cannot remember what OECD stands for. If you can find out, Carl, oh, really yeah, I'm just looking up now. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> up until about 1998, they were the same. Um, and then the United States started to diverge downwards, while the OECD kept going in like a diagonal line. Um, and has ended at 80.3 years uh, average expected birth, uh, average expected years. The United States has plateaued and sort of started to go sideways and has finished nowadays at 78.7. So there's a two-year difference. So it's not enormous, but it's sort of like to take an aggregate of the entire population to see these trends where America is sort of stumbling. Mm. Yeah. I've got OECD. It stands for Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. That's right. Yeah, I've heard that ages ago. <laughs> but now they just right, call it OECD. only just says OECD. <laughs> so it's just interesting to show <clears throat> that that as well. And people, I think, are aware of that in the US. And so the thing is, and that's like I was saying at the beginning, that the US is sort of an analog for the rest of the West because obviously it's got 350 million people and so it's massively diverse compared to a lot of other Western countries, which are much mm. smaller. Um, but at the same time, it has a lot of the same problems. Not exactly the same, but mostly the same problems that the other countries are suffering from, which is why we see the kind of same, uh, you know... Well, well, I don't know what you'd call it. Everything's sort of split down the middle in the entire West. Mm. So, like, the Democrats and the Republicans or the, the Conservatives and Labour or whatever it is in every country, they're kind of all having the same problem because they're having the same sort of culture differences. Um, sorry, my kitten keeps um, tapping things around my desk, so I keep Yay. having to put them back where they were. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, I, Just one so, comment, can, if you don't mind me going, like, backwards a little bit about the... Um the worse off um, comments about how mm-hmm. we're starting to see things worse off. An argument that I've um, starting to hear develop in sort of like the thinking or slash conscious community sort of a thing is like with the way the world's going that it's becoming unethical to have children mm-hmm. because of the you're bringing them into a world that's going to be a disaster. Yeah. And and I was like, hey, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe fair enough, but that's like a one-way ticket towards an idiocracy right there, really, isn't it? <laughs> and so I'm like, is it is it more unethical to is it more unethical to bring a child into a bad world or is it more unethical to stop good people being brought into a bad world mm. so it's less yeah. it can be saved? 
And that's the thing, right? The only people who are probably going to be doing that sort of thinking are the people that maybe would be able to have, you know, a higher amount of input in their child's lives because maybe they have better you know, yes. more money or something like yes. that. Like they have more resources to yes. potentially produce, you know, a child with a more stable upbringing. And uh, love whereas... are able to put more thought into, you know, being a parent and making really good conscious decisions to support a child into the world to be prepared for it, you know what I mean? Yeah, because, like, obviously, the thing is, it's not that, you know, if you're rich and you throw money at the kid, he's going to be great. It's not really how it works. But the thing is... bruised and probably money until he realizes... The the thing is, though, that having those resources and having that that kind of focus and, you know, maybe spare mental energy to devote Mm -hmm. to the child massively increases the likelihood that you're probably going to get a um, healthy result. Mm it's not all guarantees, but it means you're more likely to get a healthy result. Um, and the thing is, obviously, if you've got only kids being born by people who can't afford to take care of them the same way, they'll be the product of a lot more trauma and a lot more stress and are probably going to be less, you know, able to, I don't know, deal with a lot of different problems at once um, mm. because obviously they're recovering for a long time from that trauma and they're dealing with it for their entire lives. There was a book, I can't, I really wish I remember the name of the book, but he wrote all about the OCDs, the, the, um, the, the traumatic events that people have as kids. I think it was hillbilly elegy. And he was mm-hmm. talking to, he was talking about this stuff that happened to him as a kid. And he, he started dating this psychologist woman cause he grew up in rural Tennessee, I want to say. I, I can't remember if that's the case, but I no, maybe it was West Virginia. God, I can't remember. I don't know. It was very poor rural America. Mm. And the thing is, he's talking about all the shit he went through growing up and how it just seemed normal. But then he started mm. dating like a psychologist girlfriend and they were doing, as part of their course, these surveys to study childhood trauma. And they were asking people questions about, have you had this problem and this problem, this problem? And he realized he had like 95% of the problems wow. that, that they'd written down on the survey. And it's like, and then, so then obviously he would discuss those as like psychologists and all that sort of stuff. And it's just the massive impact that it had on him as an adult and as a kid and everything and how much work he had to put into not making it destroy him. Like it destroyed mm. most of the rest of his family. Um, so Yeah. To your point, Shannon, you are. I, I agree with you. I think um, you're making it statistically a lot more likely that we're going to have a lot more problems if we if if it's only um, if it's only people who have less time and money and attention to have all these kids. Um, thank, thank you for validating me, Daniel. You may continue <laughs> with your script now. <laughs> um, I just want to make a note, which is about fiction and particularly science fiction. Are usually like. Um, guides or yardsticks to how we see the future and what we're anxious about because mm-hmm. obviously the thing is we've had i was reading an article about it just yesterday which was all about how apparently all the sci-fi and horror kind of movies um from the 30s and 40s were about epidemics and floods mm. um, because that's what we were really concerned about because they'd been having a lot of floods in the 20s that killed people and the spanish flu had r- rampaged around the world in the 10s mm. So all the horror, all the horror and sci-fi movies are about that. So I'm just trying to think, like, what have all our dystopian science fiction things? I guess it's like, if I try to think, if I try to think of dystopias, I mean, I'm thinking stuff like Elysium, which is where all the rich people just leave Earth and live on a space station, so they don't have to worry about it anymore. 
Um, I mean, I forget, yeah, what are the dystopian games? Um, yeah, maze running thing, uh, Walking Dead. Like a lot of the really popular sci-fi at the moment is all very dystopian, and then you compare yeah. it to the the golden age stuff in the '60s that had a lot more kind of ideal yeah. societies. I mean, Star Trek is a, a classic example. Excellent example, yeah. Um, where the you know humanity is kind of enlightened, and no one's racist or living in poverty or anything like that um and yeah now most fiction you get is yeah about dystopian it's funny because the only optimistic fiction you really get now is like superhero stuff Mm. like it's probably the only stuff that i would call actually optimistic but it's usually so brain dead that like i can't really watch it (laughs) the narratives are so plain yeah superhero i find it a really interesting genre because it's not it's not the same as other, like, it's not quite fantasy, it's not quite sci-fi, it's its, its own genre, which I find fascinating, but not really yep. relevant, so let's yep. move on. Um, <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a, que- I've got a, I've got a um, question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go. So, say all the rich people in the world right now just went, took all their money and went, whoop, and teleported up into floating space and lived there happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Yep. What do you think would happen to society? Do you think we would like exist without that money and be really silly, or, or, and I mean rich and politicians as well, or do you reckon yeah, we kind would, of the elite? So, so the entire power structure and wealth structure vanishes overnight. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Do you reckon we would like arrange ourselves like, oh no, the money's gone, and like <laughs> rather than go. If you suddenly had that vacuum, I mean, ignoring the first like five or ten years at least, where yeah. like it's just completely insane and everything's falling apart. Maybe um, every uh, politician, maybe the state ones, aren't as important, so they like. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think if you're thinking like eventually, like after that in- initial phase where everything goes to shit, um, there'd be. I think. I think the thing is inevitably we'd end up doing the same thing again because it's kind of what we do as human beings is until our system itself is quite a bit different. And the thing is, I think if that happens suddenly, we'd be panicked. So the first thing we do is turtle and then we'd end up with basically slightly more paranoid nation states are really like maybe different sized, Mm. but I think more or less we do the same thing. Oh, yeah. I reckon things (laughs) would get worse, then they'd get better, then they'd be the same. (laughs) <laughs> no yeah i reckon everything would fall apart then everyone would have to organize how to like get the important things like power water and distribution back and then yeah and Basically, then the bright, good ideas will start out it's a great good. analog uh you'd be in iraq right after the invasion mm. <laughs> <laughs> when they kicked out all the bathists which was basically everyone important um if you were a factory owner if you ran a power plant you were inducted into the bath party, so you were kicked out. The army's gone, they're gone, the government's gone, <laughs> and you've got some Americans going, come on, figure it out. We'd be post-war Iraq. Um... There you go. <laughs> uh, so, fun times. So, I have no idea is probably my answer, Shannon. Probably something bad. And <laughs> <clears throat> um, uh, yeah, or that, which is again post-war Iraq. Um, so, all right. So, 
at the end of the science fiction thing, because obviously, like Carla said, there's a good point, is that basically the golden years of sci-fi sort of demonstrated in the 90s, especially when the Berlin Wall came down and everything was happening, that they were like, oh, what's going to happen now? Wonderful things might happen. We're finally free of war and everything else. And Francis Fukuyama wrote his famous book, The End of History, um, and obviously was wrong. And <laughs> then... Um, you know, we proceed to the current day where it's all dystopia and the world's falling apart and we're anxious about what's going to happen, which leads us into the anxiety of this article, which is nailing sort of US lack of optimism. Um, so I'm just sort of going to read each chunk and well, I guess we'll just talk about it because, again, I'd love to summarize this better, but I really can't without losing something important. Mm. <laughs> so anyway, so there's an article in the New Statesman. Um, but, oh, God, I can't find I didn't actually write the name down. Um, it was a woman. Read it. I'll Google it. <laughs> okay. So, um, an optimistic disposition also hasn't made Americans happy. One eighth of the adult population is on antidepressants, and reported rates of mental illness are rising. Last year, the US ranked 18th in the United Nations World Happiness Survey, having dropped four places since 2017. It ranks behind Scandinavian countries, Australasia, and several North European countries through, though not the UK, which ranks 19. Okay, I have the name of the author. It's yep. McBain! <laughs> Sophie McBain. <laughs> McBain! <laughs> oh, fantastic. All right, so the UK and America are not very happy. In her 2009 book, Brightsided, a powerful treatise against positive thinking, Barbara Ehrenreich uh, grappled with the apparent contradiction between American positivity and deep levels of inequality and unhappiness. The answer, I think, is that positivity is not so much our condition or our mood as it is part of our ideology, the way we explain the world and think we ought to function within it, she wrote. There's an anxiety, Ehrenreich argues, at the heart of this national cult of positive thinking, a suppressed knowledge that, in reality, things aren't that great. Mm. Um, it's funny. I, 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 definitely, I definitely see that with America. Like, there's this relentless, everything's amazing, we're American, we're free, everything's mm. great, everything's fantastic. But it's like, it's this, this underpinning thing that's, like, eating away that, like, there's these horrendous things going on and all these struggles that people have in their daily lives um, and I think, and that's why they're leading on to with the Trump thing here. Sorry. And I think that the, the ideology of happiness is quite damaging as well. Like I've heard it yeah. said that, you know, in, in prior generations, yeah. if someone's life was shit, it was just like, yep, my life is shit. That's yeah. a thing. Whereas now it's like, my life is shit. Fuck. I'm supposed to be happy. What the fuck is wrong? I'm doing something wrong. I'm so, like, so, like, you know, and like yeah. on the one hand, it's good to make steps to be happy, but I yeah. think there's a lot of pressure to be happy yeah it's like you were saying and i think in another episode we're like at business school and everyone's pressuring everyone to do side hustles and stuff like oh, it's God, like yeah. it's like if you're if you're not happy you are failing yourself or yeah. you're a failure or something you like have to do more it's like and that's why the highlight real culture exists around social media and everything it's just this veneer that i am yeah. well i'm happy i'm doing well i'm not one of those people that regrets my life and made bad decisions mm. um it's perfect yeah, everything is perfect. <laughs> and I think that's the thing is there's obviously there was a big core of people who realized things weren't 
so great and i think mm. that's why and there's always issues which is why i think and it leads on to this in a second with trump's bit but basically that trump tapped into that mm. and obviously found this massive core of unhappiness and sort of turned it into the way that he markets himself so in the article again like all of these parts are from the article <laughs> so credit to the author i am just plagiarizing the crap out of you <laughs> um as a note on trump's impact um his success as a politician has relied on his knack for stoking the politics of fear anger and racial resentment these days one of the few things uniting the right and left in american politics might be the belief that america is on the brink of disaster Clinton, Bush, and Obama are all extremely hopeful presidents in tone and language. This, of course, changed with Trump, whose inaugural address focused on, um, focused on American carnage. The shock and trepidation caused by the Trump era has prompted a somber re-examination of America's recent history, from the rise in far-right extremism that went largely unnoticed during Obama's time in office, to the shifts in the American economy that have stalled social mobility and decimated job opportunities in large parts of the country's interior. So it's basically that, you know, there was a massive problem going on, mostly surrounding economic stuff and like a race and like this. I think the far right extremism stuff is is tied into, a, again, the economic part, because the economic part disappearing from parts of America kind of just kicked everything else off. Because all these people laid out of work and all these people who are unhappy with everything around them because they don't have any money and seemingly no opportunities. Um increasingly get angrier and angrier at something or someone and if you've got fox news telling you exactly who to get angry at um and fox is the is the most watched tv network in america do you know that like i actually thought it was just for loony bins but like (laughs) (laughs) no it is that's the problem (laughs) (laughs) it's got the highest viewership i think it's some news networks or cable news networks or something it's got the highest viewership of any of them um which is terrifying Because as someone, I, when I went to America on holiday, I turned it on and I just watched it for like an hour because it's, it's amazing. It'd like be, every, yeah. every story is just so paranoidly insane. But this is more during the Bush era, I think, that I was there. Mm. Uh, but it's just every single story is just, why should you be terrified today kind of thing. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like fear, 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 fear. It was like... As and someone, why like, is it immigrants' fault? <laughs> even, I mean, the funny thing is, even here we have the guy who owns the same network, Rupert Murdoch. The Australian and the Herald Sun and stuff are pretty bad, but honestly, they're not as bad as Fox is in the US. Yeah. Like, it's like they're kept on, they're kept slightly more reasonable here or something, even though it's still nuts. Mm. It's in America, it is worse. It's absolutely worse. But That's yeah, a bit so scary. basically, oh, like, yeah. looked at the Herald Sun and been surprised at how crazy it is it's like combine that with tv and very high production values Mm. uh, and lots Mm. of and like it's basically the televised entertainment version of the herald sun almost it's 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 insane but yeah basically trump tapped into this and that's why he got so far so quickly because there's so many people that were unhappy and maybe didn't uh, didn't acknowledge it or they were acknowledging it and were getting angry at obama for years Mm. um because you know he's black and they're like <laughs> not happy with that because they are <laughs> very racist. I mean, there's lots of other reasons that people didn't like Obama, and obviously it's not just that. But 
like who, who are we kidding ourselves that that wasn't a big part of it um because mm. uh, that was obviously the constant accusations of being a muslim i mean if he was white that wouldn't have been happening no so yeah it's it's all part of it um so i mean it leads on to um the opioid e- epidemic so obviously we're getting into sort of the reasons in the article why things are feeling the way that they are rather than just the fact that they are. Mm-hmm. So of the opioid thing, um, the opioid epidemic is perhaps the most damning indicator that something is seriously wrong in America. It's a public health crisis that not coincidentally has struck hardest in the largely white rural parts of America that voted for Trump. More people are dying of drug over- drug overdoses in America per year than ever died of AIDS at the height of the wow. epidemic. As a result, U.S. life expectancy, which already trailed behind uh, Europe, Australasia, Japan, and South Korea, has fallen for three consecutive years. Something that isn't just happening in rich developed con- that just isn't supposed to happen in rich developed countries. So, mm. uh, the opioid epidemic was spurred not only by America's unequal healthcare system and its rapacious pharmaceutical industry, but also by despair and desperation among the communities most affected by post-industrial decline. Um, and obviously this is all thanks to Purdue, uh, pharmaceutical, um, <laughs> like, uh, is a really good a documentary storm of shit. Have, have you seen that Netflix documentary? Um, I think it's called the pharmacist. No. This is all about, it's really good. It was all about a pharmacist in, I don't remember what state he was in. I think I'd be guessing it was a rural American state, like one that's pretty, pretty rem- like out there, like remote. I mean, um, so, um, he was a pharmacist there and apparently, um, they've been getting like pressure to sell these certain kinds of, um, painkillers. Like we're making a lot of money from them. Just keep selling them, them. um, keep selling them. And basically I think it was his kid died from them, um, I, again, I can't remember it fantastically well, but I think his kid died of them, or his Bye. son. Bye. And then, basically, what happened was um, he was finding out why and like where it was coming from, and he went and found this doctor who was being um, contracted or like paid a lot of money by Purdue to basically be pumping these pills out. Okay. But she was using her own supply as well; like she was hooked on yeah. it as well. It's just, is this exposed this like chain of stuff going on? Mm. Um, well, there was, was one. There was one. I think it was Perju that that specifically was this opioid that they just said, "Oh yeah, no, it's not addictive. This one's not addictive. Yep. You should yep. give it out because it's not addictive." It was yeah, just that's... as addictive as any of them. Yeah, that was OxyContin. So yeah. Oxy, okay, Oxy was made it. by Perju, and Perju was basically selling it as a non-addictive opioid painkiller. Mm. And they were basically marketing it for everything. There was actually, they showed ads, like TV ads that were running in America all the time that were basically, and they were mainly pushing them into these rural areas where people had fallen out of work because, Mm. like, they were pushing them as a cure for everything from, Mm. like, can't sleep, feel bad, things hurt, whatever, like. Which, I mean, I think opiates... They do solve all problems. It's not addictive. So they go see the that doctors part. and they'd go to the doctors and say, Oh, push this, push this, push this. Mm. It's not addictive. And they're like, but it's an opioid. It's not addictive, we promise. It does these things or does push. something or whatever. It, like they, they explain it away. And um yeah, no, the American opioid thing all started with them basically marketing an opiate 
as not being addictive. Mm. Um, so it's okay if you give it to your people, which is traditionally why they weren't giving people opioids. Mm. <laughs> um, and then they all got super addicted, and when they couldn't get them anymore, then they turned to heroin mm. um, and meth and whatever else they have access to. So, like, yeah, the, ep- the, the opioid epidemic has been insane. And it's funny because, like, People think it's just it's it's just societal decline, but it's a clear case of corporate abuse. Mm. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. But it's funny that that connection just doesn't get made. It's yeah. it's it's the rich and the powerful. It's not an unregulated market. It's the rich and the powerful. So mm. like they have this anti, and somehow then that becomes anti-governance. Like the government's yeah. the problem. It's this weird leapfrog that goes on with Fox News generally. That like a corporation does something. Ipso facto, thus ergo, <laughs> it's the government's fault. We should right? have less regulation. It's what? the funny thing that it's like the government should have stopped it, or why wasn't the government must be in on it or something? And it's like, well, no, you guys keep voting for Republicans who don't have a stance on anything. Mm. So like, it's like, it's just yeah, it's funny that like the, these these problems that are clear corporate abuse then just get morphed, you know, into being um, government problems. Yeah. And, and the victim blaming is heavy as well with opiates because, uh, you know, yeah. technically you choose to take the pill, even though, like you said, the system is just yeah crazy design. And and the the numbers show that. Like is it is it just a coincidence that right now there are so many people who are such shit people that they just take opiates at higher rates than ever yeah. before seen? Like, no, it's because there are circumstances that push it. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. And people like say, oh, it's, you know, it's the lack of church and it's the loss of the town falling apart. You know, it's all these, it's everything except the, uh, I mean, obviously all these things are actually. I mean, lack of community. Exactly. No, no, no. I'm not going to, I'm not going to crap on that saying that's the problem. It's just that absolutely lack of community has um, definitely played its part in this. And there's a really, another really good book called, that I can't remember the name of now. Something towns, I can't. Remember. I I'll try and find it another time. But basically, it's all about the collapse of um of communities and that the effect that that has. But that one had kind of a weird bent to it that they were trying to sell the fact that we should bring all the churches back, and that's the problem <laughs> with America. Um, so I'm not quite in on that one. But the thing is, the find um... some equivalent that's secular <laughs> that would be so good. Yeah, that's but the it's funny. Difficult thing. The to book, do. It's the really funny difficult. Thing the book was basically like. We need a community back. Nothing else does that but the church. Thus, we have to have all the churches back. And it's like, you could also have something that just does the same thing that doesn't have to be Christian. And it's like, no, that's not an answer. Bang. <laughs> the book just is not happy with that result. Um, but yeah, no, the opioid thing, it's funny because it used to be far more associated. Opiate abuse and all that sort of stuff was a a um, inner city black people problem, basically. Mm. And then it became part of the rural white communities as well. And um, I think there was a lot of denial for a long time that that, mm. that, that was the case. Um, so they kind of uh, didn't want to talk about it. Uh, Shannon, can you not type really loud? Oh, sorry. <laughs> be like Carla, be really delicate. <laughs> oh, I was, I was, was. I need to get that old keyboard I got back. That one was yeah. so You got me that super loud one, Daniel. I blame you. Uh, it is great. It feels good, though, doesn't it? Mm. It's satisfying. I yeah, thought yeah. it was like a meter behind the mic, and I was like... No, nah, no, nah, it's very loud. <laughs> um, I've stopped. So, yeah, anyway, so the opioid thing... Um, 
yeah, it, it's kind of a whole lot of problems in one, but there's no denying the fact that it's had a devastating impact. And um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's impact can't really be understated on America um, and the effect that it's had everywhere um, and how much money it's cost them to try and fix. Um, so and the next one was in relation to a memoir written by Sarah Smarsh about her upbringing where her family is trapped in poverty in rural Kansas. Uh, so it was American families such as Smarsh's white working class and poor are willfully ignored in the modern story of our country. She observes mm. the defining feeling of my childhood was that of being told there wasn't a problem when I knew damn well that there was. The national myth is that America is a classless society, a land of abundance and opportunity, where if you can't improve yourself, you are the problem. Mm. This myth is so powerful and enduring that her relatives believe it too, even as they face disadvantages too great to overcome with positive disposition and good work ethic. And obviously that's been really persisting in America, mm. like this thing that like, if, if you're not doing well, it's because you're lazy, right? Mm. Um, I think it's all born out of a 50s America where it was like <clears throat> you like farted and you got a job. <laughs> it's like you lead a toot and it's like, oh, here's a job, sir. Job, yes, job. <laughs> and everything has benefits and work and everything else. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, um, it's, it, it's such a destructive idea, though. Mm. Like, mm. Like, this thing that, like, if you're not doing well, it's because you're terrible. I mean, yeah. the thing is, there is examples of people all over the place where they have been really smart, really determined, and they've pulled themselves out of a horrible situation. And everyone points at that and says, see, it's all just you. Yeah, but it's it. like, it's like, it's all right that all of you are playing on super ultra mega hard mode and there's mm. a thousand million bajillion things that are going to stop you. Yeah. One um, guy did. Yeah. Yeah. The phrase I like is that like the hard work buys you a lottery ticket. Yeah. 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 Because I I did a whole bunch of hard work in my years, like working full time, and then you realise after like three years of doing it, like I'm I'm just tired, and (laughs) and it's like I can't. I'm just I just don't have optimism for like a good six months, and Mm. you know, and it's just like you, you have a right to feel a certain way. You have a right to like relax when you need to relax and not put yeah. effort in and then from those times of rex, uh, rest you manifest up the ideas your passion like your meaning whatever you need to do and then boom you've because you've rested you've got that um optimism so yeah it totally sucks you know you shouldn't have those you know everyone and, has the right to feel their own certain way and and, not be told that they're lazy and it goes beyond time you know it's like in that time that you're relaxing are you heavily concerned about bills and you can't afford your health care and everything else mm. like technically you've got the hours but it's do you relaxing, actually have yeah. restful hours you know and that's really the concern that i think a lot of people have in the end um yeah you're not wrong you're not wrong because there are definitely times where you you are resting but if, you, if you're not being looked after properly you're stressing as well so it's like yeah and I think about like and actually obviously the problems that that we have had uh, but we're in a country that does support us quite a bit better than america yeah. um so the thing is america you can imagine you know you get sick and you're off sick even though americans get like two weeks of um leave a year or something like it's not four like us mm. it's, it's it's much less and then you get sick and maybe you're worried that like it's going to cost you ten thousand dollars it's like you know your thing's going to crap out and the public health care system is non-existent virtually 
And um, yeah, it's 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 crazy that that myth still pervades everything. But I think again, it's driven by people who are now retiring, um, who grew up in a world of the fifties and sixties where everything was thrown at them, and they don't realize how much it's changed. And it's funny when you talk to like. Um, a lot of people now, and I've talked to my dad about this a few times, just explaining what's happened to everyone I went to school with, like from the UK and here, and just like how much more difficult it is seemingly for everyone to get mm. anywhere um, compared to what it was for him and the people that he knew. Because like he got into being a lighting engineer. I think he went to this place that needed people to come and become lighting engineers, and he didn't have a degree. And basically went and said, hey, I want to do that. And he got into their trainee thing and they taught him to be a lighting engineer. How many and companies it's... actually train people anymore? Like... <laughs> hey, that's what I mean. Like between no. automation and, a, and not wanting to train anyone and everything else, it's like, and little, yeah, it's just nuts. Like it's crazy. And anyway, we'll get more onto it soon. But I just, I wanted to have that point in there because mm. it's so true, especially in America. I've got a a friend who works on reception at a kind of big corporate um, company in uh, in Melbourne, and ah, she regularly a corporate company. A corporate company. <laughs> I don't understand what it is. Um, and she semi regularly gets you know graduates coming in and trying to give her the resume because that's what their you know sixty year old lecturer has told them to do walk in and ask for a job and she takes it and she's like no one is going to give you a, like that's ridiculous yeah you are not getting a job this way oh yeah no ever. i'm trying to think about my office <laughs> ever. Like, yeah that's not going to happen yeah. <laughs> they have that's very what, that's regimented what, systems now but that's what some kids are still being told yeah oh it, it's crazy the detachment between the way things used to work when there was an abundant community for that stuff and with the way it is now is night and day like it, it's a huge difference um, it's actually one of the funny things I noticed with my, I don't know if I mentioned this in a previous episode, but looking into engineering, it's almost like what it was back in the fifties where it's just like, if you have a STEM degree, they're just like opportunities because <laughs> it's the one thing that like we still lack. So it's the one thing that sort of still exists in that territory. Um, anyway, now I'll, I'll keep going on to the next bit, which is a longer thing about the shutdown of general motors, which links into that, um, so this is a longer bit that I'm going to be reading, so bear with me, everyone. Right. <laughs> um, in addition to the proliferation of working-class memoirs, the past few years of American soul-searching have given rise to a spate of insightful, deeply reported books that ostensibly chronicle America's decline, but also offer rich insights into the meaning and limits of American optimism. One of them is Janesville by Simon & Schuster, at a 2017 book by the Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter Amy Goldstein, who spent five years following the stories of residents of Janesville, a town of 63,000 people in Wisconsin, after General Motors shut down its assembly plant in 2008. Some 3,000 people lost their jobs overnight, devastating the local economy, while in the aftermath, thousands more lost their jobs. The residents did not give up, though. Instead, they showed extraordinary resilience and determination to lift their community and find new work. Local politicians and business leaders rallied to put together the biggest incentive, pack 
biggest incentive package in Wisconsin history for GM to return to Janesville. They lost their bid, despite that. It turned out they never stood a chance of winning. The head of Janesville Job Center created a coalition of local organizations tasked with helping the newly unemployed retrain and find work. He attracted millions of dollars in outside grants and many laid off workers determined to turn their misfortune around, signed up for training at their local college. As the years stretched on, something became disturbingly apparent. Most people who found new work had to accept lower pay and fewer benefits. The optimists, those who had tried hardest to work themselves out of their rut, tended to fare worse. Of the 2,000 laid-off workers who retrained, only a third later found a steady job. Among those who did not retrain, half found steady work. Those who retrained also tended to be earning less, and the longer they trained, the less they eventually earned. So basically, they shattered the GM plan. The GM plan is really interesting because General Motors obviously had been locked in this contractual situation that it had been in for such a long time because of the salaries and the benefits and everything it offered. And obviously, it was completely out of whack with the rest of the US economy in terms of the wages and benefits people were getting. And they're like, this is normal. It's a factory job. Like, this is what we do. Mm -hmm. And then it gets shut down. And it's like very suddenly, GM's like, thank God, now we get to pay what everyone else pays in the rest of the world and don't give benefits because that's what everyone else does. Mm. And um, it'll be a lot cheaper for us. And the people then are like, okay, well, I'll just go get another job. And then they realize that outside of these, like what I call almost heritage companies that have existed and been producing things for like 50 or 60 years, so they're still behaving like they're in the 50s and 60s. Mm. Um they very suddenly realized how much of the rest of the country actually, well, what's going on in the rest of the country with these other work types. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it kind of, yeah, I think um, it's really kind of shattered the idea that it's still just hard work. Mm. And a lot of the people that are still in these really good situations are people that just haven't lost those old situations yet. Um yeah, I, I guess there's not too much more to put on it than that. We've kind of talked about it already. So why exactly did they um, have the better conditions in the first place? Was that anything to do with, like, their competition with Ford? And No, well, it's because Ford and GM both had really good conditions. Um, the thing is, every company that was sort of like a big factory that was from around from the 50s and 60s had to have certain rules and laws in place to protect the workers and give them benefits yeah. and that stuff to attract them. But then, um, but then, and then, as, as, then as time went on and industries grew around them, exactly. disadvantaged yeah. them, especially with the competition of the free market. Basically, it just meant that producing things at GM was extremely expensive compared to anywhere else. Yeah. Thus, they had to make their cars more expensive. Thus, no one bought them. Yeah. Um, so everyone buys them at the other places and then these people lose their jobs. But yeah, you'll find that with, with General Electric... Um, I think uh, Boeing was similar. I think Boeing is actually to an extent still similar. I think any of those companies that's been around for like 60 years, 70 years is like locked in this a bit to an extent unless they fired a whole lot of workers and recontracted everything. But obviously that they also tend to have the big unions. So I don't know how many still exist in that form now after the GFC and everything else because that's what this would have been from. It would have been from the GFC and the product afterwards. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so America having lots of fun realizing that, you know, I mean, they're, they're basically dispelling the myth. They're basically yeah. just dispelling this myth that hard work is all it takes, um, because yeah. nothing is like the fifties anymore. 
Uh, so I'll keep. Go, I'll go on to the next bit, which is about evictions. Um, so. The Harvard sociologist Matthew Desmond won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for his book Evicted. After an ambitious, deeply researched portrait of American decline, Desmond draws on years of embedded field work to tell the stories of eight families teetering on the edge of homelessness in Milwaukee's low-quality private housing market and the landlords who are turning a profit to renting to the very poor. High eviction rates have consequences. Crime rates soar in previously safe neighborhoods as residents become more transient and no longer watch out for one another. But the most devastating impact is on the people evicted. Women forced to choose between an abusive relationship or homelessness. Mothers who cannot provide for their children. Struggling families who cannot begin to improve their lives. While all their money and energy is focused on keeping off the streets. Uh, Desmond follows the story of Sharina Tava, a former high, a former school teacher, nor make, now making a fortune as an inner city landlord. Sharina would no doubt see herself as embodying certain American ideals. She's fearless, a go-getter, skillful, and a self-made businesswoman who has carved out a niche for herself renting property in areas other landlords don't dare to venture. She's not prone to crises of conscience, and when she evicts adults and children with nowhere to go because she has bills to pay too, as she often reminds her tenants, her hard-won American dream generates nightmares for her tenants. When a fire breaks out in one of her flats, killing a baby, Sharina checks with the fire department to see if she has to return the parents' rent given the fire broke out at the start of the month before. At the start of the month. She's pleased to learn that she doesn't. Uh... Desmond's book illustrates that something's gone horribly wrong with the American idea of self-improvement if it can only be achieved through trapping others in misery. America is supposed to be a place where you can better yourself, your family, and your community, but this is only possible if you have a stable home. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the whole thing... I think there is there is a bit of a shift in the American concept. They've sort of gone a bit more towards zero-sum again. Mm. And I've noticed this in other things that, like, it's only by gaming other people that you're able to get ahead again. It's, I don't know, like, it's being put behind a wall of indecency, almost, success. The mm. success that Americans have come to expect in life because of their national narrative and everything else. Um, so I, it'd be interesting to know how many people like this there are. Um how many people only see this as being the way forward. And maybe that's a big part of why America's conspiracy scene is so incredibly powerful <laughs> and so big is because maybe as things get worse and worse, it is kind of just people who are cutthroat and organized enough that are still getting somewhere. And maybe they all know that because they know mm. these people. Um, like this, this, this habit of the, um, of renting in inner cities. Um, it's, um, I think what they do is they jack the rents up, but they say, yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you a place that's crap, but I'll give it to you. Mm. Um, but you have to pay this rent. And then they get people desperately putting the money together for a few months and then they kick them out and then they put someone else in who'll desperately mm. put the rent together for a few months. Um, I've cut bits out of these texts because obviously it was even longer before. Yeah. But like they were talking about another section about the same thing um it's pretty horrendous uh, yeah no it, it, it's definitely pretty there was another section in the bit about the gm workers about this girl who um was a straight a student 
and um, basically was the poster child for the retraining system, Mm. um, who got a degree in something to do with criminology, ended up working in the prison system, but then the stress of working in the prison system was so great and everything else that she ended up killing herself. Mm. Um, so her, the poster child for the retraining system killed themselves, and then the entire they had to kind of like <laughs> pretend <laughs> it real, like 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 get rid of it. Like it was really bad. So um, yeah, I'm pretty near the end, so I'll read the last two little sections, um, and then we'll just talk about the whole thing in conclusion. Um, so in a more optimistic books, in a more optimistic book. James and Deborah Fallows uh, traveled around the US in our town seeing where places had gone right. So basically it was a lot of like they flew around the country in a little plane and stopped in all those little countries and talked to everyone and found the success stories to an extent um, about where like local politicians and businesses had worked together to kind of make something work again. Um, So the, the Fallows blamed the TV media for contributing to unwarranted levels of pessimism about the state in the US. What 24-hour cable news introduced and Fox perfected in the modern news consciousness is an unending stream of horrors from somewhere else. The natural result of well-meaning liberal media is thus a kind of pity for the heartland and of conservative media a survivalist fear about what other people out there are trying to get away with. Mm. James Fellows writes in The Atlantic. I'll go straight to the conclusion. But this is from their conclusion. Um, but the end of American optimism could be a good thing. Faith in the American dream has persisted for too long, even as social mobility has stalled. Jobs have disappeared and the population has sickened. If you believe the American society is fair, that this is a land of equal opportunity and abundance, then the, log- the logical conclusion is that the poor are at fault. Mm. A less optimistic America could be a more compassionate country. One more willing to expand the social safety net, treat addiction as an illness, and expand healthcare provision for the poor. It could be a more prosperous country, one willing to set aside toxic partisanship and address the structural problems that are holding too many Americans back. It could even be a happier country, one in which poverty or worklessness is not seen as a moral failing. And obviously that's the actual end of the article. I've just cut that out at the end of the article. I'm um, glad, I'm glad you've like turned it around a little bit in the conclusion, Daniel, because you nearly ruined my day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I, just been getting like quieter and sadder. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I've, I've, my sitting posture has dropped about 45 centimetres <laughs> in the slouch. It's the all-important thing, right? That like, if you if you're addicted and like committed to thinking everything's fine, everything's perfect, and everything's going to shit, you kind of need to have the massive downer to realize that you actually have to do stuff to make it better. Because mm. you know, it's that thing. It's that thing with alcoholics. You can't get better until you acknowledge you have a problem. Mm. You know, you gotta hit, you gotta hit rock bottom. You gotta hit yep. rock bottom. Exactly, and maybe this is in a form America's sort of rock bottom. Like, who knows? Maybe they'll look at themselves and say, well, okay, we need to do this and this and this. I think the problem is that, like, with these places, like in Wisconsin, you probably have a lot of areas where people are sort of used to just being able to afford everything, do everything, make everything. Like, life was sort of easy mode for a long time, um, where you could just buy the new car every year. You know, that's like there's people that just buy new trucks every year or two in America, and it's just, that's normal. Like, there's no problem with that. They can afford it. Um, And suddenly you don't have that. It's, I don't know, like, I think their entire national ideology has kind of been built up on this idea that 
you can just rock up at a company, do a bunch of work. You'll get all the money and benefits you ever need and you can live a great life. Um, it's very simple. It's very easy. And I think it's take, it's, it's so ingrained now that it's taking a lot for it to disentangle itself. Mm. Um, and I think it's the problem they're going to face now. And you see it like with the way Trump and Fox News and everything work is that like they're reinforcing that that is the truth all the time. Mm. They're, they just keep reinforcing it. So, like, like I don't know. It, it comes down to whether or not America can really um, recognize what its real problems are. And the problem is that a lot of them will only recognize the problems that exist around them. Mm. Like, mm. in my little town, this is the little problem that we have, and that's the focus, and that's all I care about. It doesn't matter. I guess because it, it is such a spread out uh, geographically and mm. culturally diverse country that there are lots of little pockets mm. where it's hard to yeah there's a wide variety of experiences as part yeah. of the country i mean this is the same stuff that's happened in the uk because of all the steel mills and everything that disappeared in like all the rural parts because again mm. america the uh, uk like america was sort of held together in the same way and australia as well i mean look at the 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 broady plant closing down and all the other mining and and production facilities disappearing like, it's the same problem. It's basically pretty good pay, pretty good benefits, pretty good working conditions, and suddenly it's gone, and it's like, this is what the rest of the world is actually like, and it's everything is sort of shattering a bit. So, look, this is the rock bottom, I think, that the West needs um, in a lot of ways. And I think it's the problem the same. The whole world is going to hit this point eventually. And this is, again, to bring it back to the original point of the podcast, this is why I'm a world federalist. I think the entire world exists in this ebb and flow. Mm. Like a poor country, a rich country, whatever, everything is transitioning towards better. Mm. And then they hit it and then they sort of inevitably hit a point they can't go any higher because someone else is doing something to undercut them and they fall again. And then you have stuff like this happening. And then maybe eventually they go up again, but it's 300 years later and no one remembers it. You know, it's like, it's just the entire of history and, and everything is just in this continuous cycle. So I'm all for making a system that kind of just keeps things decent all the time rather than, <laughs> rather than just constantly smooth smashing. out some of the... Because it's the thing with America, right, is that a lot of this work has, like, the part that hasn't gone overseas has been automated. So, again, you need laws to, to you know, re-divert profits from automation if they're going to happen, if it's going to happen. Mm. Um, you're not going to yeah. stop it, but at least do something to manage it. Whereas in these countries and the way that they've operated, it's been just like, no, nah, don't worry about it. Like, they'll do something else. Like, more jobs are appearing all the time. Come on, Mr. Factory Worker in Arkansas, move to San Francisco and become a coder. You know, like <laughs> And then and there's that and then it's like oh, <laughs> What do you mean you, you can't afford to move to San Francisco? Why not sell your house in Arkansas? What's that? <laughs> Nobody wants to buy your house. Fuck you. <laughs> and your house is worth like a twentieth of an apartment in San Francisco. You can do it. And then, oh man, because the houses like there's like hundred thousand dollar mega mansions in like Georgia and stuff. Um, because it just not happened to near anything anyone needs. Mm. But then the house price in San Francisco itself, like like if you want a house in San Francisco, it's like minimum a million dollars. A million US dollars. So like yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. Um, so yes, on a positive rebounding note, hopefully it turns into something good from Yay. that point. Hopefully we can <laughs> change, but 
who knows <laughs> who knows maybe we'll just teach everyone you'll be failures if you're not coders and anything else is useless i don't know until they need a, a pipe fixed and then they're all like <laughs> panicked so are you telling me daniel next time i'm optimistic if i kill it i can make something good happen with my life <laughs> <laughs> if you're unwarrantedly optimistic okay. improve yourself <laughs> all right, all right, all right, oh man super depressing episode with a slide up at the end so well, you're welcome I'm, to that slide up guys i'm gonna go spend the rest of my day hanging out with happy people <laughs> that sounds like a very good plan <laughs> i'm gonna pat my kitten <laughs> oh yeah you're lucky man you're like <laughs> and it's going how can I... to be on economic decline and i'll be starting again how can i make this kitten even better than it's already being a brand new kitten that's uh, much better than a brand <laughs> yeah, so that's the end of the kitten with something else it becomes a better kitten that's in, the slightly positive upside of the depression hour um mm. i will catch you all again another time my <laughs> name's been daniel i've been carla and i'm still shannon sad sad shannon <laughs> <laughs> see you guys see you next week <laughs>